you would, please take your Bibles out now and turn them over to the book of Daniel. We resume our study there this morning. We begin Daniel 6. We're now almost halfway through this book. Daniel 6, of course, we understand if there's any chapter in the Bible that I think would probably be one, I would say one of the more famous chapters of the Bible, it would be Daniel 6. Because even people at their most basic level are familiar or have heard something about Daniel in the lion's den, which is what Daniel 6 is. <laughs> it's it's the, the lion's den and Daniel's stand before Darius and having to deal with his fellow presidents and satraps and whatnot. Uh, this is where we have to be careful when it comes to how we understand the story, because so often you can hear people try to trivialize the story to the point that, you know, so you just have to get up out of your lion's den this morning. Don't ever do that. Daniel was actually in a lion's den, and we don't need to trivialize the text. Does the text apply to us? Yeah, it does. Is it important that we understand why the text was written, to whom it was written, and, and then go from there and how it applies to us? Yes. And here's the thing, that I have been this week and chewing on Daniel 6 and so thoroughly convinced that this is God's message for our time. The book of Daniel is God's message for our time. I know it's rooted it began in 600 B.C., but beloved of God, as I look at culture around us, as I look at the world around us, and I look at the truth compiled here in Daniel, I can think of no better message, no better message that the chapel, that the world, that America and Christians and Christians all over need than the principles laid herein. Because although we don't want to trivialize the lion's den and say, get up out of your den or whatever, we do want to look at the example that Daniel and Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, has they set in a world where they were exiles, where they were looked down upon, where they were despised, and how they lived their lives and say, how can I look at those examples and ask myself, how can I live in a world where I am an exile? Because you are, you and I, if we're in Christ this morning, if you call Christ Lord, we are citizens in another country. We are living here right now in exile waiting for our Father to call us home. How will we live? What will we do? Where will we go? What stands will we make? Where will we capitulate? The, the book of Daniel just compels us to say, when the hammer stroke falls, how will you live? How will you live? And how will you live if the Lord rescues you from the hammer stroke? And how will you live if you have to endure it? Because our answer in both of those should be the same, faithfully trusting in Jesus, hoping for his love and grace and peace to shine in and through me to other people. We see those, those examples in Daniel, and they're powerful. Um, so, uh, you know, I, of course, I just want to make a little here, a little caveat. I could be preaching any book of the Bible and say this is God's message for our time because God's word is perfect and beautiful and true and eternal and applicable to all in every season. But Daniel has really knit my heart to this idea that this is God's message for our time. Without further delay, I don't want to, I want, I want to move to the text. So this morning we're looking at Daniel 6. We're going to cover the first nine verses as we lay the foundation for the lion den narrative. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom the satraps should give account, 
so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are all agreed, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Darius signed the document and injunction. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Now, please pray with me. Father, your word is before us. It's set before us like a mighty tower, like a strong oak that gives us refuge, that gives us shade, that gives us peace. We come to it now with open hearts, open minds, and ask you to fill those hearts and minds with your truth that we might be transformed and never be the same again. And not because we've heard a sermon, but because we are confronted with a powerful Savior. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. As I've said to you many times before, I really like martyr stories. I don't like them in a sadistic way. In other words, I don't enjoy reading about people being tortured and persecuted. But I think I find martyr stories inspiring just because of the truth that they present to us. They present to us us real men and women just like you who put their clothes on the same way, who have to go about life with some of the same worries and fears, and and what will they do when they have to make a stand for truth. But I, I love martyr stories. I've read several volumes on martyrs specifically. But what makes the story so powerful, what grips us, or at least what grips me, is that they're willing to sacrifice themselves for a commitment to another. You know, when we think about life, of course, we we can assign value to everything that we do, but if you don't have your life, you have nothing. It doesn't matter how much money you may have in the bank or what type of car you may drive or, or what type of status you've achieved for yourself. If you don't have your life, you have nothing. But when we read a martyr story, we are being confronted with someone who says, my commitment to this being, to this God, is such that I am willing to give you the most valuable thing I have my life. And the thing that compels them to do this, to give their lives, is the same reason that the world hates them. It's their love for God, plain and simple. We can sometimes make it a little bit more complicated when we start trying to bring in all the geopolitical aspects that go into persecution. But at the end of the day, what really makes people hate God's people is that we love him And they can see in a martyr, this person is unswerving. This person is so committed to this that they're not, they're willing to die. They're not scared to give their life for it. That's a powerful testimony. It should be to you and to me. And in in history, it's sometimes been a powerful testimony to their captors. These martyrs are often harassed and tortured because they place their love for God higher than their love for the state, higher than their love for the self. And in a world that doesn't know Jesus, 
A love higher than the love for yourself does not compute. Now, I'm not saying that people, like, I'm not saying that people don't have loves where they would be willing to, like, I know that many parents, if you ask them, sure, they would give their life for their children. There's no doubt about it. But there is a complexity to love that when Christ is missing, you just don't understand how deeply complex love is and how deeply beautiful it is. And I stand behind that statement. The abuse of countless martyrs, the abuse that countless martyrs have endured is horrific. But here's the thing. They walked, they walked into a valley because denying God was more horrific to them. They walked into the valley of shadow. When you have people saying, either recant or I'm going to kill you, and they say, I can't recant, at that moment they know they are walking willfully, choosing to do this into the valley of shadow because in that moment, whatever horrific death awaits them is less horrific than denying God. That is a powerful truth. Would that we all have that strength running in our veins by the power of Christ. The martyrs take the hatred of the world as a price for loving God. They will take the hatred of the world as the price for loving God and beloved of God is a worthy trade. If you want to read some accessible books that are not old, I mean, the Fox's Book of Martyrs is classic, but in recent history, uh, Jesus Freaks, Volume 1 and 2, that DC Talk put out, but then also another book called By Their Blood, just accounts for martyr stories in the 20th century. And you will read some hard stories, but you will also be encouraged by some beautiful testimonies of men and women who stand for God. When you look at Daniel 6, what we could say of it is it's very similar to Daniel 3, very similar. The structure of it's kind of the same. The details are slightly different, but the themes are the same. What you have in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 is an edict that mandates worship of the state. Both in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar to worship his statue. Daniel 6, that no one pray to any god or any other man except for Darius. So essentially you have the same idea, idolatry, worship of the state, and the decision for the follower of Yahweh to either be faithful or faithless. Those, these are the main themes that we find in this chapter. And I think when I preached Daniel 3, I said, this is very similar to Daniel 6, and they are. They come together, um, and they, they kind of tell the same story. But Daniel 6 is also this reminder that if we love God, if you and I love God, if we truly love God, then the world is going to hate us, and the world is going to use that against us. I don't think it's just, I know it's not, I've, I've read history the, uh, the, using Daniel's religion against him to induce pain and fear and hardship, that's historically attested. That's been a, 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 what men or the world has done for centuries now, millennia. So when we look at this, we understand that to love God is to have the hatred of the world. Now, the, the issue here is that the world is not creative in persecution because what has history proven? Pain, fear, and brutality can be very effective tools because in, in the face of many martyrs who stood the test and stood for God, you have the face of many people who saw the pain and who walked away and who said, no, no thank you, I'll deny. With, within Daniel, though, we see a power given to the people of God, and it is a power, beloved, you know what the power is? It's a knowledge. It's an understanding. It's the reality of something that is true. That God is faithful and good, 
that God is with us in those valleys. And I dare say that God is worth dying for. Do you know reformers like John Calvin said when we recognize the goodness and beauty and truth of God that we can become reckless in how we live for him. He didn't mean reckless in a bad way. He meant fearless, without fear, because once we understand who God is, who we are in light of God, that God loves us and that God embraces us, he is worth giving our very lives for, laying them down. Daniel, like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah before him, he was not bombastic. He was not proud in his stand for Yahweh. He chose a quiet humility in the face of danger, and you'll see that unfold in the story. But we're reminded here that pain and hardship, they're going to come. They come. We deal with them. They come at us. And so but we can be resolute. Even though they come, we can be resolute. Why? Well, because God is bigger than the pain or the hardship. Don't let that be something trite in your life. Don't let that little idea be, oh, okay, I know God is bigger than my pain or my heart. I'm preaching to myself right here, right now. Don't, don't do that. Like, yes, believe. God is bigger than my pain or my hardship. Because the gospel, that beautiful message of Jesus' rescue of his people, if he loved you and me, you and I enough to die for us, if he loved us enough to die for us, And beloved of God, he wants to walk with us in our pain and hardship. He's not going to leave us there. Our citizenship is in a far country, and we are despised because we're exiles here, because we live for the truth. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one thing I want to bring out this morning, these few verses. It's this, the people of God are marked for attack, that the people of God are marked for attack. I don't know if you saw the movie uh, Hotel Rwanda, that captured a horrific scene from the mid-1990s in the country of Rwanda. There was a mass genocide between two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus made up about 85% of the population, and the Tutsis made up about 14%. And they, they got together, the Hutus, and decided that the Tutsis needed no quarter. They needed to be done. And it is estimated that during the mid-90s, during that genocide, about 800,000 Africans were killed. Do you know what the crime of the Tutsi people was? Do you know what their crime was? That they were Tutsi? They were Tutsi. They were identified as Tutsi, and the Hutus said, you're what's wrong with our country. If you're Tutsi, you're the problem with no objective reality. Why did they suffer death and harassment and torture? Simply because how they were identified. Why will the people of God suffer persecution and, and all the other things that go with it? Because we are identified with God. I, I challenge if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you need to know him. But understand that the journey is more difficult than you can imagine, but more beautiful than you can imagine. Well, this morning as we're looking at this, we're seeing the beginning of two kingdoms collide here. We're looking at the kingdom of Persia, but of course underneath that, since we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities, as Paul would later tell us, we're looking at Satan. We're looking at the the world collective, and they seek to attack and and to eradicate God. How how does the world and, and Satan do this? By trying to eradicate his people. You come after Yahweh by going after his people, and so that's the goal. We are confronted here this morning in the first five verses of this paragraph with a new kingdom that is set up. It is the Persian kingdom. Babylon is gone. They're dead. They're out of the way. Now we have Persia, and you have specifically 
uh, Darius the Mede. As I started mentioning a little bit last week, who is he in history? We don't really know. There are several theories out there, some of which, some of them say Darius was a co-regent with Cyrus at this time, and he died earlier on, and Cyrus took over. That's one. Another is that Darius and Cyrus are the same person, and that they're just given two different names, uh, given one in, in Babylon and one in Persia. Uh, I have some issues with that theory that I won't get into now. But the point is, is that no matter what theory we hold, we don't know who he was, because he's not attested outside of the Bible. We just know he was a king that Daniel mentions during this particular period of the empire, the Persian empire, and we have him here. He's establishing, these first verses are telling us that he's establishing a new empire. So it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom, whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So there we, we're getting a little bit of uh, accounting here, satraps, who what were they? They were providential rulers. They were meant, they were designed, their whole goal was to be put over a particular region or providence, and that they were to pr provide security there, protect the people, protect the king's land. But they were also collectors of tribute. The conquered peoples who were in those regions had to pay taxes to the king. And so it was their job to make sure that the king's land was protected and that the king's new subjects were paying their dues. That was their, their job. Now, when we look at that, what is it a prime opportunity for? Utter corruption, right? Utter corruption when you can extort money, when you can lie, you can cheat, and you can steal. It's an opportunity for godless humans to do what godless humans do. Take advantage, to be oppressive, to loot, to rob, to steal. But see, over these satraps, so literally in the Aramaic, it says presidents. High officials is fine. It doesn't matter what you call them. But over these satraps, we have these presidents or high officials, and their job is to rule over the satraps and to keep them honest. Since you're in a system where it's easy for corruption to happen, yeah, you have to have some accountability. And so the satraps report to these guys, and we're told right here and, here and now, Daniel was one of those guys. He was one of the overseers of the overseers. He was a checker on the checker. He was one who checked on the people who checked um, because of the propensity for, you know, scandal and corruption. It's interesting to me that on the very next chapter after Belshazzar dies, Belshazzar has made this promise to Daniel, purple robe, gold chains, third in my kingdom, Belshazzar dies, all that goes down the tube, we find God in a very a subtle way blessing Daniel yet again. So Belshazzar's promise is fulfilled in Darius. Daniel gets the leadership. He gets the accolades. He gets to be in a position where he can affect the kingdom. I love that God takes care of these little details again and again. Who's, who can I put within this pagan kingdom that can be a glimmer of light, can be that one candle in the dark room? We'll put Daniel there. And so God blesses Daniel in this way by fulfilling Belshazzar's promise. Now, when you look at Daniel, it says, then this Daniel, verse 3, kind of, okay, we're going to elaborate on him, became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. I love that this detail is added. He was distinguished. He stood out. He was the one that the king took note of. Why? It tells us because the spirit of God was in him. It says an excellent spirit, the idea being the spirit of God was working in and through Daniel was using Daniel within this kingdom. And so what distinguishes Daniel from his contemporaries is not his work ethic, not his intellect, even though he worked hard and was smart. It wasn't his fashion, even though he's clothed in the royal robes. 
and gold chains. It was the Spirit of God. What is the Bible telling us again and again and again? What distinguishes us from the world is not our outward excellence. It's the Spirit of the one working in us. And we need to take that to heart. We need to take that to heart because that is how Daniel was distinguished. Now here, let me present to you what to me is kind of a pretty delicious irony. We live in a world, and Daniel lived in a world where Yahweh was despised. So the God that Daniel served was not loved. He was not honored. He was despised. Daniel is filled with the spirit of this God as a follower of this God, and Daniel has character traits that distinguish him from other people. He's valued. He's desirable. So the irony is is that the world will hate our God, but they will value and embrace and desire the very character traits that our God works in us. It is an irony, but it's this idea that if the Spirit of God is in us and is working in us and we are living in a world uh, seeking to be faithful to the God, we're going to stand out. We're going to be different. And despite, though one may hate our faith, they will really love our faithfulness. Uh, it reminds me of this, op- this movie, To End All Wars. I've probably mentioned it before, about a POW camp in, in Japan during World War II. And one man was a Christian, and there were a couple of them were Christians, and they began to share the gospel with the prisoners of war. And these men started converting to Christ. And they started being better servants to the Japanese who were brutalizing them, just brutalizing them. They started working harder, serving better. And the Japanese at one point were trying to take away their Bible. And then he said, if you let us read this and have this, we'll be better workers because we're not just serving you, we're serving him. And they were. It's a powerful thing that when God's Spirit is at work in his people, it does distinguish us because there is a faithfulness, a humility, and honesty there that the world is not used to. Well, the other officials decide they've had enough. The, 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 the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for a complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So when we, when we look at this, why are so Daniel is distinguished because of the Spirit of God? The officials are tired of Daniel because of his faithfulness. They're sick of him being so honest, sick of him being so true. And they say, well, there's no corruption in him. There's no fault. In other words, they're speaking specifically to kingdom work, the kingdom of Persia. We can't bring a charge against this guy. Why? Well, because he's godly, because he lives to honor God, because he has an excellent spirit in him, and he is not giving us any reason to charge him. His his. When we look at this, what motivates? Of course, that's the question we got to ask is, um, what is the motive here? Why do they all of a sudden come? Well, I don't think it's too speculative to say they were jealous. They were probably a little jealous because the king was going to make him the top head of all the country. The king clearly trusted him. But I also think it's frustration. If you have an honest man in a system rigged to be dishonest and he's constantly blowing the whistle on dishonesty... I'd imagine eventually you're like, let's get this joker out of here. I'm ready to get some bribes and kickbacks. And he's, he's ruining our hustle, is what Daniel is doing. He's ruining their hustle. And so what I, what, I, what I pull from this is this testimony about Daniel, what does it tell us? That even in dire circumstances, he lived honorably. Even in, in circumstances where he's 
obviously despised. He probably knew that. In circumstances where he's in captivity, he's not there by choice. He's there because he was brought there by force. And in the midst of all these things, he sought to live honorably. Beloved, that means that it's never okay for us to live dishonorably in our world just because we're having a hard go of it or we're being treated unfairly. I hate being treated unfairly. I hate it. My inner sense of justice just rages when I see something that doesn't seem fair or right. And I have one of two choices. I can act in anger and say, well, you're going to get what you deserve, which is vengeance. Or I can say, come, Lord Jesus, and give me grace to endure this, which is what Daniel and his friends did. See, we live for God in all seasons, in all seasons. Not easy. It's not easy. But why? The question is, why do we live for God in all seasons? Because we are ambassadors of heaven. We are ambassadors of heaven. We are citizens in a far country, as I said earlier, and we are ambassadors for that country. Well, here's where we get what is, to me, the linchpin of this whole chapter. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, we can't bring political charges against him. He's too clean for that. What will we do? We'll use his religion against him. We will use his religion. Now, let me tell you just how important that sentence is right there. The testimony. We spoke of testimony earlier of martyrs. What is the testimony of this sentence? The testimony of this sentence is you've got these godless, pagan, greedy guys who want to kill him, who want to have Daniel murdered, who know, who know his life, and they know it so well, they say he will honor God whatever happens. No matter how much we hate him, no matter how jealous we might be of him, we do know that if he's put in a position where he's challenged to honor his God, he's going to honor his God. Beloved, let that be said about every person within the sound of my voice, that our testimony, even among our enemies, is such that whatever the case may be, this brother, this sister is going to honor God. That is a powerful statement. And when we look at this, we see how the world works. It will always try to use God against us. We're going to be tested. We're going to be tempted. And again and again, we're going to find ourselves in these places where, what will we do? How will we respond? Well, let me challenge you this morning to live in such a way that the world knows your allegiance. For me to live in such a way that the world knows my allegiance. I fall dreadfully and woefully short in this from time to time, or often, but the, the convicting truth is how can you, how can I, how can we live for the Lord in such a way that they say when these guys are pressed, they're going to honor God. That's the challenge for us. That's going to be the challenge for Daniel. When we look at verses 6 through 9, these final verses of this opening paragraph, we see it's an old trick from Satan, the use of fear of pain to harm God's people. They come to the king. They give him all the flattery. Um, actually, I want to stop right here because in verse, in verse 6, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, now your Bible may footnote that. That is a very interesting word in the Aramaic. In the Aramaic, it literally means they came as a throng of people. Do you remember in the New Testament when Jesus had just done some miracles and the people came thronging at him to crown They were going to make him king by force and he hid himself from him? It's the same idea here. When it ta- it's a very graphic word. They didn't, I mean, they came by agreement. The ESV captures it, sure. They did come by agreement or collusion, but they came in mass. 
They came in force. They came to make an impression. They came lively and loudly and in a big crowd so that they could make an impression on the king, and they do. That, that part of it is successful. So that's what that word, it's not merely just an agreement. It's agreement with force, agreement in mass, agreement to make my point. And so they say to the king, this is another part of their character flaw, all the high officials of the kingdom, so that as all the presidents, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. Why is that deceptive? Daniel was not a part of that conversation. And I, I think this is in very important detail because the king who was going to set Daniel over all the country would have trusted him implicitly. Well, if Daniel is on board with this, and surely this is okay. So I think that they didn't, obviously they're trying to get their way, so they're not going to say, hey, but we left Daniel out of the conversation. They come deceptively. They tell the king, we've all agreed. And so when you look at their decree, it's, it's pretty easy to, to kind of ferret out why they, they make this decree. Well, they, they're, they're appealing to the king's pride. They're appealing to his pride. Well, yes, I mean, I am a king appointed by the God, so it is right and good that people should pray to me. So they trick him by, by playing his own pride against him. But they do something else that's wicked, you know, expected in this culture, but wicked. They're inciting idolatry. They are inciting people to a false way. In this beloved of God, in this the world has not changed. The, the, the incitement of idolatry in the face of truth. I said this in chapter 3, and I'm going to say this again. What's another ripple effect of this, another fruit of this? As you see, no sanctity for life in this culture, in these people. I want you to think now. They are willing to have a man thrown into a den of lions where he is mauled because they want his position. They want his paycheck. They want his gold chains. They want his purple robes or whatever else they wanted. You, that's, that's not just, wow, that's terrible. That is satanic. Because at the bottom of that is there is no sanctity for life. What are we? We are alive. We are alive in whose image? In God's image. So it's a rejection of the life that God has given. He breathed into mankind. It is a rejection of the image that God has put on his people. Oh, that is why we stand for pro-life stuff even in the present day because we see how beautiful and, and holy and right it is that we would protect uh, children in the womb because they have God's breath and they are in God's image and we fight for that because we look at a culture who hasn't changed one single bit who doesn't care about life and they'd as soon as, as, as kill a gnat as you. That's the way it goes. And so we're looking at the, the ripple effect of evil is that you lose any sense of the sacred beauty of what is alive, especially humans in the image of God. So what does this tell us? The people of the world, of Satan, of the kingdom of darkness, they really hate God's people because they think by death they're robbing us of the most precious thing. But the most precious thing that believers in Christ have can't be stolen. And that is his life living in us. Well, to end this up, he puts the, they convince him to put the decree in writing, and he does, and he signs it, makes the injunction irrevocable. 
And so even though their motives were nefarious and specifically targeting Daniel, what you see is an example in history where a kingdom uses law to prohibit the worship of God. That's what happens for those 30 days. They cannot, they're not allowed to worship God. Their, their ability to worship their God has been taken by the state. That was not the first time, and that was certainly not the last time. We're going to see how Daniel responded, but beloved, as we end this morning, I, I, can't, I can't think of a better question to say if and when it happens in our time, how will we respond? This, this text compels us to say when or if those liberties are taken and we are challenged by a higher authority, whether it be the state or something else, how will we respond? Will we walk with our king through the valley of shadow? This text stops here. The, the paragraph, even in the Aramaic, signals an end because it's kind of leaving us hanging just a little bit. How will Daniel respond? What will he do? Of course, we know the story. We know how he responds. But I think it's a good opportunity for you and I to say, what will we do? How will we respond? Where will our allegiance lie? Where will we draw? From where will we draw our strength? Because you see, beloved, the writer of Ecclesiastes says very wisely that there is nothing new under the sun. These things have happened, and they will happen again. And they will happen again. And they will happen again, and they will happen again until Jesus comes back. Old theologians call the church here on earth the church militant. I love that word, the church militant, because we are locked in a battle, a spiritual battle, a battle that we've already claimed victory in, but we are locked in a ba uh, battle. And when we all get to heaven and we commune with Christ, we will be the church victorious. Not we, we might be. We will be the church victorious. But we still, if you draw breath this morning, if you have some blood running in your veins, you still are called to be a soldier in the armies of God, to make your stand for Christ, to live for Christ, to love Christ, to proclaim Christ. And this is how we do it, by being bold in the face of questions and hardships and living for him. So what do I say? I say if we're going to follow Christ, the world will hate us. In fact, I'm, I don't make that up. It doesn't come from me. I won't turn there, but my summary of John 15:19 says, if we follow Christ, the world will hate you because he's chosen us out of the world and made us his own. With the passage of time and the descent further into immorality, on, and, and with the passage of time and the descent of in, immorality only further deepens the chasm between God's people and the world. Listen, I, can, I challenge you this morning, I challenge myself, we cannot live trying to please the world. We cannot live trying to please the world. So often, in a, the attempt of Christians to remain relevant, we concede too much ground. We concede way too much ground to the world. We give, we give away too much of the truth. We give away too much of the holiness of God, beloved of God. Yeah, is it good to be relevant and have a voice? Sure. Not at the expense of the truth. Not at the expense of the character of God. Not at the expense of your testimony. Oh, no, 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 we can't concede. Uh, let it be said of us that no matter what is done to us, we will not turn from God. The Christian life really is simple. It is simple. It is difficult, but it is simple. We are called to faithfully obey God by the power of His Spirit 
to live from experience or circumstance to circumstance in obedience to God, and when we fail to obey, to repent and to cling to Him by the power of Christ working in us. And if that describes you, broken, walking with a limp, but trusting solely in Jesus, then beloved, you will prevail, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. Amen and amen. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for the book of Daniel, uh, the power therein. It is just so beautiful and moving. And God, I, I pray that we would really believe it, that it wouldn't just be a, a good story, that it wouldn't just be something that kind of moves us in a moment, but that would be a truth and beauty that compels us in a different direction. Oh, Lord, we yield to you. Father, we lift up hearts to you and ask that your grace touch us. And Father, ever may we decrease and you increase in us and that we continue to march in your army for your glory. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.